This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Do as I say, not as I do. That seems to be the guiding principle for both the Prime Minister and Conservative leader Andrew Scheer during the Easter holiday. And after telling the nation to forego family dinners and outdoor Easter egg hunts, Justin Trudeau got into a motorcade with his entourage and went to Harrington Lake to be with his family to do exactly those things. And in addition, to get there, he crossed a provincial border where all but essential workers are being turned back uh, to get to the cottage. And that is another thing that our leaders have asked us not to do. And then there's Andrew Scheer. He was given a seat on a government challenger plane along with two other MPs, and that would have allowed for social distancing. But he brought his wife and five children on the plane, which meant that every seat was taken. And uh, you've heard his explanation in Bob's News. His wife brought wipes, and they did not speak moistly. So, my question is, is, isn't this a time, you know, th- this is not the end of the world. These are not, I don't think, huge transgressions. But isn't this a time when our leaders should be leading by example? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in our crack strategy panel. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and former Toronto City Councillor. And Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hey, everyone. Hello, Libby. So, Hi, Libby. Did, did everybody have uh, uh, a reasonably nice Easter holiday? Uh, a self-isolated Easter. <laughs> it's not good, Libby. I, I look like Tom Hanks and oh. cast away. Oh, no. <laughs> the, the soccer ball or him? Oh, no. It's, I, I've got a volleyball that I talked to. I've named him Justin. Okay. <laughs> All right. Karen? Uh, yeah, no, it was a quiet Easter. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. So, uh, you know, the the Prime Minister looked like he had a, a really nice Easter. Um, what do you think of uh, what he was doing on the weekend and, and uh, his wife, Sophie Gregoire, putting this all over social media and, and making other families jealous, shall we say? Yeah. Well, should I, uh, Liddell, uh, I'll start off. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's a tough one because, you know, you, you don't, you don't want anyone not to be able to spend time with their family. And I know that the prime minister has, you know, suffered a lot given the fact that his wife had been tested with COVID and, and he was in self-isolation as a result. And, and you know, and I've been on this program a number of times and I've complimented him uh, throughout the process. And, and I think there's a couple of times when he, I think, went, showed some bad judgment. I think this would, would have been one where I think he might have wanted to lead by example. You know, he's been on TV quite regularly and quite forcefully telling people to stay at home and not to travel and 
and even over the years, just before the holidays, was telling people, to, you know, resist the temptation to go visit your family and friends and and whatnot. And so again, I, I feel for him because I know that he's, you know, he's been away, and and, and Sophie and, his, and the kids have been away since uh, since she was uh, relieved and, and released to go. But but still, I think a lot of families out there are suffering the same thing, where they'd love to go see their grandfather or their kids and whatnot, but have been told not to go. And you know, and also I think when when he travels, he's not traveling alone. He travels with an entourage, and they're putting he's putting them at risk because now they have to be on the job doing what they have to do. So I thought it was a little, it showed a little bit of bad judgment. I thought I thought he should have, you know, practiced what he preached uh, and and, uh, and led by example, especially during the holiday season when he was telling everybody not to travel and not to visit family and friends. Yeah, and then there's that whole thing of, of going to the cottage and crossing the border where other people are being turned back. Karen? Yeah, you know, I I think that I have some sympathy for the Prime Minister because, you know, he it's it's not, you know, we were told not to be with our extended family, but he just wanted to be with his family. And I actually think that maybe this can begin the conversation about how we can start to re- think about returning to life um, post-COVID. Because the reality is we needed the social distancing restrictions in order to combat the spread of the virus. But at some point, the rules also need to be um, practical and pragmatic. And that he knows that his wife is not getting COVID because she's already had it. So she's not at risk of transferring it to anyone or getting it. And so, you know, traveling with an entourage, you know, and posting it all over social media was probably not the right thing to do. But, you know, I, I think that there, we do need to begin the discussion about how we are going to relax these social restrictions because they're, they are not sustainable for a long period of time. And, and maybe this kickstarts the conversation of, okay, we know it's not going to be this week or next week, or maybe not even within the next 28 days. But we've got to learn how to resume some semblance of normalcy. And to your point, Libby, like, you know, how, how am I going to go see my dad? I, you know, I haven't seen my dad in six weeks because he lives in a retirement home. I'm accepting that that is the way that it is. But, you know, at some point he's 90 and I'd like to see him before September. So how do we begin this conversation? And maybe out of this, we can start that discussion. Sorry to hear about you not seeing your, your dad. That's really tough. Uh, Charles, um, you haven't weighed in on, on Justin Trudeau yet and the, uh, the great egg hunt caper. No, I don't have a lot of problem with uh, you, the Prime Minister, or Mr. Shear making the decisions they made. In the, in the case of the Prime Minister, I mean, his wife had COVID-19. Um, they made a decision that she and the children would go to Harrington Lake, which is 27 kilometers, basically the distance between Scarborough and Etobicoke, um, to uh, help in her recovery. And whereas he stayed back in Ottawa to attend to the nation's business, which he's been doing diligently and assiduously for the last three weeks without interruption, he made no bones about the fact that um, he was uh, going to make the trip to be with his wife and his children. And, you know, we all a lot of us are very fortunate to have people with whom we are living and riding out the storm together. So it's not like we're all in complete isolation. And as a husband and father of young children, um, I think it was made perfect sense for him to make that trip. And it was in coordination with all public health and local authorities. And it's not like he stopped for for beer on the way up. I mean, it's basically a one-way trip without any other interactions. Uh, what about Andrew Shear, uh, John? Did did Andrew Shear have a misstep uh, with the plane? Well, so I think you know, you know, to, to, to remain consistent about this, I think I think the the issue is is the same in the sense that you know he, he's put some people at risk. I think 
Yeah, well, again, like the Prime Minister, I, like I said, I was, as I mentioned in my comments, and I understand his issue, and I, and, I, and I sympathize with the fact that he, you know, he needed to do what he needed to do, but we're certainly in uncertain, uncharted waters here, and, and, and I think that, you know, getting onto a plane to go to Ottawa for work, uh, and, and it is demanded, and he's done it before, um, but also to, to, to know that it was a small plane, and to put the whole family on there, knowing that there was other MPs uh, on it as well, you know, put everybody at risk. And I know that if he had said that he, his wife had wipes and they weren't experiencing or, or, or doing any sort of moist talking. Um, and, and I get all that. that and I think that that's, that that's an important uh, element to try to maintain, you know, but they weren't social distancing, uh, for one thing. They were on a plane uh, for however many hours it took from Saskatchewan to uh, to Ottawa, not least of which, of course, from BC to Saskatchewan and then Saskatchewan to Ottawa. Um, but I think they're, you know, they're leaders and, and they've been talking about you know, telling us and on a day-to-day basis to, to practice all this stuff. And I think that they have to be the ones that have to not only not only talk about it, but they have to walk the talk. So I do I do kind of, you know, say, look, they, they both, I think, showed some, some lack of judgment on this. Uh, I think that, you know, when you're telling Canadians every day uh, what not to do, and then you do the exact opposite, uh, it's not particularly, you know, it's 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 not a lesson learned, I think, and that's what 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 the challenge is, and, and certainly what you know people are going to be able to reflect on. And you know, in the case of Sheer, uh, I read extensively. Elizabeth May was one of the people on the plane, and um, you, uh, she talked at length about it. That it wasn't her first choice, but then she thought that that his children, wife, and children would have to be going through airports if she said no, because both her and Carla Qualtro were were given the choice. They said, you know, you could say no, but I think that that too is putting those other people in a really bad position. I mean, it's kind of, um, even if you really don't want it, I mean, it would be very difficult, I think, to say no in that circumstance. So we, we, there was also a, a bit of that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad I wasn't either one of those. Yeah, well, and I think, yeah. and, I, and you saw that, you heard that from Elizabeth May, who said, look, you know, I had a choice, and, and, you know, the, and the choice was saying no and, 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 and having the family suffer another another issue or, or whatever. So I think she you know, obviously said yes in, in compassion in, in the way that she, that she is. But, I mean, there's no other, there, there's no chance, or there could have been another way of another opportunity to get another plane there. And having the Shear family travel on their own on a plane is fine because they've all been in self-isolation together. But, you know, again, the, the challenge is you had other folks on there who had to make the decision, probably uncomfortably, to be on that plane. So I think that there could have been another re- resolution was get the plane back to Ottawa with the BC folks and then fly, fly it back. It, it, that could have easily have taken place, I would imagine. Um yeah, I guess so. That's uh, an added expense for taxpayers, but um yeah. Okay, let's uh let's take a couple of calls on this before we move along to the next subject. We've got Pat in Toronto. Hi Pat. Good morning. Um I just can't believe the comment that this is a little bit of bad judgment. This is just wrong. How do we say that it's okay for the prime minister to break the rules and yet we're giving out thousand dollar tickets if you happen to sit on a bench in a park here in toronto i mean i'm sorry this isn't a little bit of bad judgment this is just irresponsible and privilege talking big time 
Uh, yeah, uh, Pat, I, I'd have to say I think it's a little tone deaf for sure. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe uh, Sophie didn't check with the PR people before she posted it on social media. Uh, you know, I'm kind of glad she did because at least at least we know about it. Um, again, not I don't it's it's not a huge deal, but it's it's just wrong at this point, you know. Well, how do you compare that though with these big tickets that have been given out? That would be my defense. I'd take it to court and say, well, the prime minister doesn't follow the rules. Why should I? Well, that they would tell you that the tickets are being given out under municipal jurisdiction oh, and yeah, the prime minister is elsewhere. Court, I mean, it's just wrong. Yeah, I hear you, Pat. I certainly hear you. Thanks. Let's uh, hear from Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Well, I have a different view on that, Libby, and I guess that's what makes the show interesting. Yep. So my attitude towards this is give it a rest. Uh, and I'm going to say the same thing about the other leaders as well. But specifically with Trudeau, uh, the man has been in self-isolation for weeks. Uh, first his wife was ill, then when she was well, she moved out to the cottage with the children. Well, he remained in self-isolation for the required period. So while many of us uh, with small children, not me, I'm a senior, are living comfortably at home with our families, we may or may not like that. In any event, uh, he's the prime minister. He's entitled to a weekend with his family, given uh, the demands that have been placed upon him. I, I just think that there are a lot bigger fish to fry uh, than this particular issue. And, and, and not to be political about it, but I kind of feel the same way about Andrew Scheer wanting to spend time with his family. I have no issue with that whatsoever. Okay. That's my you're- comment. You're, you're an understanding guy, Dennis. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. Okay. Okay, moving right along, uh, there are a lot of other things. Now, Jason Kenney, uh, Premier of Alberta. So first of all, thank you, Jason Kenney. He is sending a whole lot of PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, to Ontario and elsewhere, uh, which I think is fantastic. But the other thing... He just said that if there are treatments or vaccines that are uh, approved in what he called uh, sister jurisdictions or equivalent jurisdictions like the states or, or other G8 countries, but are not yet approved by Health Canada, which tends to be slow, he would circumvent Health Canada. What about that, uh, John? Well, with respect to the Alberta situation, I know, and, and I think that you know, again, we're in the uncertain times and, and desperate times, and I think what the Premier is trying to say is simply, look, if other jurisdictions are prepared and are... are uh, and he's also following what, what the health official, um, Dr. Tam, said that, you know, she was prepared to do, which is if other countries or peer countries are, are approving certain certain um, uh, issues and drugs and what, whatever for uh, for this, that, that they would, you know, in order to prevent any bureaucratic holdup, they would be able to do it. So I think he's just following what, what they've been able to say. Uh, what, I heard what, her say what, something different, John. Uh, she said it's very important for Health Canada to uh, be the one that makes the approval. I mean, she might ask them to go quicker, but um, that's what I heard her say. Yeah, you know what? And I didn't, I didn't really, I heard, I heard her say the opposite, but I, or, or at least say that, that they wouldn't hold it up. And I guess it's probably the, you know, Health Canada would have to have obviously some level of, of, uh, of interjection here to, to make sure that the things are, are, um, are being um, are being proper to to the Canadian standards, but I also think that 
we all know that in some cases, when it goes to Health Canada, it could be a long, long time from a bureaucratic perspective. And if she's prepared to, to speed it up, that's great. Um, but I also think that we're in times where we can't afford to have two or three month waiting periods. But is this uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, civil disobedience, Charles Bird? I mean, is this is this out of line or OK? Uh, I mean, Jason is prone from time to time to these kinds of partisan outbursts. I mean, essentially what he's saying is that a given first minister can rewrite the rules of our confederation and assume the authority of another level of government. And that's just it's just wrong. It's not sustainable. At some level, it's dangerous. Um, I think there's probably a bit of a political message here being delivered to Public Health Authority of Canada, which is, you know, you've got to speed up uh, your decision-making processes. Otherwise, we might take things into our own hands or something like that. But, you know, it, it, what what really concerns me is is the bigger issue, and that is, you know, at the moment, in terms of the Canadians who've died from COVID-19 to date, over 90% of them are age, are, are age 60 and older. And in Ontario alone, we've had 89 long-term, long-term care homes that are dealing with COVID-19 outbreaks. And close to half the deaths we've seen in Canada have happened in long-term care facilities. I mean, th- these are the issues that really, really matter. And there was a Conservative MP who tweeted on the weekend, and I, I was yep. because I was just so aghast. At it. Most deaths are in care homes where life average life expectancy is two years and 65% usually pass in the first year. Time to start moving Canada back to work. I mean, what's that? Well, what, you, you what know what? That? You know, Charles, um, obviously he took down that tweet, but I, I hate to say this. I think a lot of people think that. And well, that's it, unacceptable. But, it's yeah. unacceptable. I mean, that that basically says that um, if there that if you're not contributing to the economy because you're retired, then you have no value. I mean, what is that? Well, it's, that well, makes elderly a another, dirty word. Another, it makes it a dispar- a term of disparagement. Well, yeah, yeah. but he, here, let let me just uh, you know, I I want to get with that, and and you know, I think there's something of this uh, provincial and federal divide because uh, the standards in long term care, something that we here cover all the time, not just when there's something. Exploding. I mean, we have regulations out the wazoo. We do not have enforcement, and and um, the problems have been going on for years. And I don't know if this will, you know, spur finally some action to fix it. But also, there's a question that it's a provincial jurisdiction, and we need some national standards. And I don't know if this will bring that. I mean, we had the Minister of Seniors and and Theresa Tam making some suggestions, which were kind of obvious and and are voluntary because it's it's you know not it's not their knitting. Karen, you what are you going to say here? Well, I just, I, uh, you know, of course, I, I don't think that there's, well, sorry, I, I don't think anyone shares the view that um, because they're in long-term care that their their lives matter less. So I, I just want to put that out there. I don't think anybody thinks that. I think there is uh, legitimacy to the, the question of do we have the right strategy right now because everyone is doing their best to social distance and yet the virus seems to be getting to the one place where we absolutely do not want it to get because we know that that population is the most vulnerable. So, you know, there is discussions in Quebec and to your point, Libby, because it's provincial, 
you know, do we test widely people working at long-term care facilities and in long-term care facilities that don't have any symptoms? Well, it, I mean, it, it's not just because that is the population that's most vulnerable. It's because they live in conditions that, that are so close to each other that Correct. that contribute to that. So, I mean, the the it it is. I mean, unspeakable to to say that. But one of the things behind that might be well, you deal with the problem in long term care. And and it's different in the rest of uh, of the world. One hundred percent. That's I mean that's what some of the the thinking is. But but I mean the problem in long long term care isn't just obviously, you know the, that population is frail, and as we live longer, the population gets frailer because w- we wait longer till we get in there. But but the conditions in there are such that it it contributes to it. And and I have to tell you, I talk. Talk to, uh, among other people, to uh, you know, one representative of nonprofit uh, nursing homes and one of for-profit, and I asked them, "Is it a good idea to legislate to make it um, illegal for people to work in more than one home?" And they said, "Yeah, sure, because that would cost more money." And, and they both said yes for the duration of this crisis, but not for good. No, that'll that'll never fly. I mean, you know, I I was shocked by that. I would have thought that if anything, this shows that you know we've been talking about paying decent wages to those people who are heroes who work there. Uh, and you know, um, I don't know, um, John, do you have a view on that? Well, you know what I do, actually, Libby, and, and a, a personal one, because my father, uh, many years ago, um, was in a long-term care home here in, in Etobicoke, South Etobicoke, and one of, I thought, one of the better ones. Uh, well-cleaned, well-maintained, um, and, uh, you know, and, and sort of passed away by natural causes there. But I should say, when I went to visit him, I, you know, the, the, the staff there are incredible. They, the work that they do and, and, and what they have to withstand and, and on a day-to-day basis uh, is incredible. And I think the one thing that I found even then, this is way before uh, COVID was even, was even mentioned, um, this was, you know, they, they, were, they were always short-staffed. And whenever anybody needed something, it took a while for someone to finally get go, go to the room and, and assist uh, the patient. Uh, you know, so that was always something that I found uh, was 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 a big issue back then. And I think if nothing else, um, after this is gone, our COVID is over with, and we're back into reflecting on what we could do better uh, on a number of fronts. I I, I would imagine with the long term care facilities and how we deal with our elderly is going to be top of mind. Uh, because what we're seeing in BC and, and, and what we're hearing about now in Ontario with respect to the deaths being rampant and, and, and long-term care facilities should never, ever happen again. Uh, and I think that, and I think Karen was mentioning about the policies and, and how we need to sort of fix those. That's one thing I think these, these governments and us, I think, have to ensure that governments across Canada uh, do a better job in making sure that long-term care facilities you know, are uh, looked after and, and properly taken care of because our population is getting older, and, there's, and, and, and these long-term care facilities are going to continually be uh, full over the next, uh, you know, many years. So I think it's upon us to have to fix that and resolve that. But, you know, and the other thing, too, quite frankly, and, and for families that can't afford it, the private, uh, you know, care ser- delivery services that that often go not only to the homes, but also to long-term care facilities, a lot of them are being excluded from going to the, some of these residences. So, so where... There are healthcare providers who want to go and help 
they can't because they're being prevented from going into them, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of them are certified and have PPEs um, and, and, and can, can help. A lot of them are not, are not being able to go, and that's another issue. Oh, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of issues. I mean, John, I hope you're right, but we just, you know, finished with the Wetlawfer inquiry where everybody swore up and down that this was going to be fixed and it was never going to happen again. So there's something somewhat different happening now. Um, I just, you know, I, I hope so. I hope that this will have put this issue, you know, so close in everyone's face that something may be done finally. But I don't know. And, and I don't know if, if one of the things that has to be done, and, uh, you know, I think that there are issues throughout healthcare where we need national standards, not provincial ones, Charles. Yeah, it's entirely possible, and you're right that um, um, the Public Health Authority of Canada has issued guidelines, which um, which I imagine the provinces will um, adopt in fairly short order in those areas where it may not have or they may not have. But let's not lose sight of like the fundamental fact here. We have a Conservative MP saying that there are people of a certain age in long-term care homes whose life expectancy doesn't warrant um, anything other than getting the economy moving again. And that speaks to a, a far more fundamental problem. And and you're right, Libby. I mean, there are folks who, who share that view. But, I mean, human rights don't come with a best before date. It's not like you reach a certain age and what happens to you doesn't matter anymore because you only have a certain amount of time to live anyway. I mean, what what kind of talk is that? It's It, it, it verges on insanity or something even worse, right? Attitudinally, Hopefully, the one silver lining of this horrendous crisis will be a fundamental reevaluation of how we treat some of the more vulnerable parts of our of our population, and and that starts with seniors, and that starts with people in long term care homes. Absolutely, um, we are starting to run out of time here. So, uh, Karen, what would you like to leave us with? What it, what is most urgent on the docket now? Well, I think uh, you know. To revisit what we started talking about last week is the importance of testing. And uh, I know that the province has come up with a new testing strategy. And to your point, Libby, let's hope that it's testing in the right places so that we're catching this virus before it affects the, the, the most vulnerable. Um, but we still, I think, have a long way to go to figure out how we're going to get ahead of this virus because we're not testing yet at, our, at the capacity that we could be. And from the experience of other countries, that's one of the key indicators of our ability to, to get ahead of this. Just before I move on to the other people, I have to say that just yesterday on the show, so on one minute, uh, I'm looking at Doug Ford saying that he's been assured by that authorities that there's going to be complete testing, certainly in long-term care homes. And, you know, not five minutes later, I get a call from somebody who says his wife works in a long-term care home. One of the other staff members tested positive and they do not have tests. So, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's how does this stuff get from the top down to, you know, down to the street level where it happens. Uh, John, what would you like to leave us with? Well, and I, I agree with Karen, obviously, with, t- with testing, and, and we can never have enough testing, and, and we're always going to find that, that case where someone didn't get it when they asked for it, and that's going to be an unfortunate reality. But, but, I, but more importantly, though, Libby, I think the next week, uh, the two weeks are going to be critical for us here in Ontario. Uh, I, think we're, I think they were saying that there's a couple of days now where they've seen a, a bit of a decrease in, in cases 
yeah. would have been identified, which is a good sign. None, nobody obviously is going to mention that that uh, anywhere near the flattening the curve. But I think that you know the next week to two weeks are going to be critical for for what we see as, uh, and hopefully that we have been able to flatten the curve. Okay, and Charles, uh, I think we should keep a close eye on what's happening south of the border. Um, you know, in Canada, we've had less than a thousand deaths. In the United States, they're quickly approaching twenty-five thousand deaths. And the U.S. population is, of course, about eight and a half times larger than ours. But, but we appear to have sidestepped the brunt of of the crisis, whereas the United States is really entering into the heart of it. And we have a lunatic in the White House, and that's becoming increasingly apparent. And it is starting to come with some very, very real and dangerous implications. He appears unable to see this crisis through anything but the lens of his own re-election prospects. And that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, um, we didn't even get to that next time. Um, thank you so much to our crack strategy panel, Charles Bird, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. And we'll talk a, a week today. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.